They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. show andrew how have you been since the world has caught fire and there's a bunch of craziness going on how you been hanging since lockdown because last time we spoke was back in january we recorded that first episode we did together yes it was definitely pre-lockdown wasn't it um I, uh, uh, funnily enough, just, just after we came out of lockdown here, I did another, I was asked to do another podcast by a guy about the Cathars as well. And um, I could definitely hear when I was talking to him that I, I, I basically hadn't spoken to anybody apart from my wife and son. <laughs> my, my voice sounded all sort of weak and croaky, you know, I wasn't speaking in complete sentences. And, you know. um, but I, I really enjoyed lockdown, I have to say. <laughs> it was like a golden age for me uh, uh just because uh, you know i i found out i'm happy in the situation that i'm in you know we live in this nice house we've got to garden and i was picking up stuff that i'd been meaning to do for years and hadn't got around to like uh i've had this heart that i bought uh i mean oh gosh about 15 or more years ago and i hadn't played and it was i used to refer to it as my shame it was you know sitting in the corner glaring at me so i actually started learning the harp again uh, oh wow and then some stuff like uh, ancient Greek. I'd made a couple of attempts to learn ancient Greek, and I was, I've been picking that up again and doing it regularly. So I, I just, you know, of course, there was all this confusion and, you know, worry. But uh, I basically, I was perfectly happy with my, you know, with my life. And uh, going, I was already going out for a long walk once a day, and we were allowed out for 20 minutes a day at the uh, <laughs> peak of lockdown. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I I didn't really change my lifestyle too much either. I'm more I'm I'm a homebody, so I like being at home as well. And a lot of people I don't understand. Like that was one of the fights I had with people. It's like, why do you want to go? You know, why do you want to be out on the street, out, out at the mall, doing all this stuff? And it's like, 
people go crazy when they're inside, I guess. I mean, but it's like you said, do something productive with your time. Go learn a new language. Go learn a new instrument. Do something. Keep your mind occupied. But since everybody's always on their phone, social media, looking at garbage, not reading a book or doing whatever, they start to lose their minds. <laughs> and uh, that's awesome, though, that yeah. you were able to, um, you know, enjoy it more than other people. Because I know some people who had it rough. Yeah, and it does depend on your circumstances. You know, like if you're in a bad relationship in a small apartment mm -hmm. with young kids and you know you're already on the poverty line then that you know that's going to be a tough experience yeah so today we're going to be talking about hopefully covering welsh mythology and like i was telling you before i'm familiar with the nordics and their pantheon and their background and their epics pretty much and what really drew me into this, and, and then you told me it's a little bit different, that Game of Thrones is based off a little bit on the Welsh. It has Welsh influence. But what in, what really, and I talk about a lot of ancient civilizations, and when you were on the show last time, we talked about Gnosticism, the Cathars, the Bogomils, and I think we even talked a little bit about the Mundaeans as well. Uh, uh, the Mundaeans as well. And I just can't help but th this correlation between all these ancient civilizations, they have pretty much the same deities just with different names. And the Welsh, to be honest, I never even looked into the Welsh mythology at all until you brought it up to me. And when I started looking into them, it's pretty much the same thing as the... There's a lot of Roman. Uh, who who came first? Was it was it the Welsh or the Romans? Because the Romans have influence as well with with some of their deities, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. The the Romans were here in Wales. Uh, um, so that, so uh, the Lord had the, the native uh, Britain Britons were in in the island of Britain um, before the Romans came and. Um, you know that that's really well attested. Julius Caesar, in the first century BC, ca came over, uh, and he he only spent a certain amount of time in Britain, and they didn't actually conquer it. Uh, mm. But he wrote about it extensively, and that you know, uh, one of the most uh, studied texts of the classical world. Um, but uh, and then it took uh, Emperor Claudius in the first century, um, you know, getting on for a cent whole century later, uh, to actually invade. Britain and subdue it. Uh, so, um, so that so there were basically all, all these different uh, tribes of ancient Britons who who were in charge before the the Romans came, and the, through the Romans, you know, um, fought them in some bloody battles. They also got some of the tribes on their side, and there were revolts and everything. You know, long story in itself. Um, but they they didn't really conquer the whole of Wales and the whole of Scotland. And Scotland Scotland is particularly famous because Hadrian's Wall was Britain was is uh, built in the time of the Emperor Hadrian, uh, because that they still had uh, so much trouble from the uh, native tribes in Scotland that it was easier to build a wall which could be manned with the Roman soldiers mm. than yeah. to actually come to view it. And so well, that wasn't quite the case in in Wales, but there are parts of Wales that weren't really under Roman 
rural. Uh, now, where I live in southeast Wales, on the, the sort of coastal strip here is quite gentle countryside. And, we, you know, it's next to the sea, the Bristol Channel. So that's quite easy to invade and to, you know, to, to hold. And um, so in, in the town Barry, where I live and where I was born, uh, there were Roman coins were found in the park, which is just 100 uh, yards away. Uh, there were Roman docks that have been discovered. There's the outline of a Roman villa. Uh, and then in Cardiff, there was a Roman castle. And uh, Carleon was a very well-known major uh, Roman stronghold, which still survives. There's an amphitheater there. And you can see the outlines of the, um, the dormitories where the soldiers lived and everything. That's, that's a really magical uh, place. It looks beautiful there in in uh, very new South Wales. Uh, not not New South Wales. <laughs> oh, is it different? <laughs> yeah, new, new South Wales is in Australia. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, it's it's an early morning for me, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, this is old South Wales. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so Wales, it's. Um, so it's in the western part of the middle of Britain. Uh, so uh, on the on the on the south coast, we've got the Bristol Channel, and you can see England across the water. Uh, to the west, you've got the Irish Sea, and then the Atlantic. So if you um, so so like there are ferries to Ireland, uh, uh, and then you've probably you've heard of Liverpool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Liverpool is just beyond the north of Wales. It's in England, you know, but just beyond the north of Wales. So it's parts of it quite mountainous. We've got uh, this long coastline. It's incredibly green, uh, which is a result of it being an incredibly wet country. You know, like Wales is really famous for its rain. You know, like like I, I, Ireland is famous for rain as well. But when I lived in Dublin for ten years, it's nothing like the kind of rain we can get here. You know, uh, <laughs> it's depressing, isn't it? Uh, well, you get used to it, but uh, the other side of it is it—it's incredibly green because of that, you know. And uh, yeah, you, you find that uh, green grass and grey skies go together really well. <laughs> yeah. Well, so very new South Wales is beautiful as well. So <laughs> I figured that out. But the reason I brought that up—the correlation between the Romans and and the the Welsh—is because you have certain greco-roman deities that relate like bellinus and he he's associated with what jupiter apollo and you know again he's on a chariot all these correlations and what this brings me to is like maybe perhaps back then and this is another conspiracy and i know i talked i i mentioned to you a conspiracy earlier before we began of the anunnaki i don't know if you're familiar with them or not are you familiar with them? Um, it's not quite ring, and uh, I recognize the name, but you have to fill me in. Uh... So the Anunnaki, this is ancient Sumerian, Mesopotamian. There were these gods that supposedly ruled on the world that they were physically on, so the gods walked with the people and you see the same depictions of the this is why you see the same depictions of the same deities all throughout history in different parts of the world mesopotamia mesoamerica and perhaps maybe 
there were actually gods roaming with, through with the people because the Welsh mythology is full of of giants, full of creatures, and it just makes me think maybe back then there was a point in time where there were gods walking among men, and and that's why we see these depictions of them, right? You have in India as well. You have these these epics that are told the bhagavad gita and all these different epics that that talk about wars between gods and this advanced technology that they had they had sticks with the power of you know these rods with the powers of of 10,000 suns and things like that it's like did they have nuclear weapons back then you know what i mean like they were on spaceships and all this craziness and when I was looking into this, I go, man, this is pretty much just relabeled from other other religions and other places of the world as well. And the Anunnaki, which pretty much is, it gets very convoluted. Like I told you, right, you're telling me that when you look into conspiracy theory, it, it changes when you start looking into the details. Well, it gets a little weird uh, saying that aliens pretty much engineered the humans and that's how we came to be. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I have come across that. I mean, um, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, uh, uh, Eric von Daniken. Yeah, Char good. Chariot to the Gods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we we had that book at home. And so when I, I was like nine years old and I was absolutely fascinated by it. You know, um, uh, those uh, sort of South American uh, reliefs that you have a guy who looks like he's an astronaut, basically, you know, wearing. Yeah, ancient astronaut. Yeah, exactly. Stuff, yeah. Um, but like, you know, when we were chatting earlier, I was saying I, I do find conspiracy theories interesting. But, they, but then the thing is, I have to go and check the details. It's saying that the devil is in the details. Yeah. And um, uh, they're often very kind of associative. And, you know, this name sounds like that name. Uh, so they must be the same thing. Um, so I, I kind of get a bit tired of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but welcome so, to the so, club man yeah. so so like with with my own work what i've tried to do is um uh you know i try to sort of uh use more kind of respectable if you like scholarship as the basis of it but then i'm interested in okay what can we find that seems to be you know, you know it's very solid scholarship but it's still genuinely weird stuff that that's what interests me you know mm. uh, uh so, so like when you talk, you were talking about um, the Bhagavad Gita, yeah, briefly, weren't you? Yeah, the, the, and the Mahabharata as well. Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely love the Mahabharata, uh, and um, uh, in fact, when you were saying about this sort of nuclear weapon kind of thing, um, there there was this uh, 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 theatre version of the Mahabharata was done that was made into a movie as well by uh, peter brook don't know if you come across that no i'll have to check that out actually it, it's you about peter brook? Peter, peter brook as a director yeah and um it's just called the mahabharata and it's about seven hours long wow. uh and and it's 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 kind of it, it was done in the 1990s i think um and it has this what takes a little bit of getting used to it at the beginning is it has this multiracial cast like uh, only about <laughs> <laughs> Only about you, you know. So this is the Indian national epic. 
Yes. So he decided to do it where he, he's got actors from all over the world, almost apart from India. <laughs> like about two yeah. Indian actors in it. And so that takes a little bit getting over these, you know, Italians and Africans and uh, the Eastern Asians <laughs> playing all these parts, you know, in English and Americans and stuff. Uh, um, uh, but once you get over that, it's actually brilliant. Um, but with the ultimate, the, the, there was an ultimate weapon in the Mahabharata, you know, and, and it's this absolutely massive, sprawling epic. I think it's seven times longer than the uh, Iliad, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey combined. You know, it's wow. absolutely huge with all these kind of side quests going off and all this long background. And, and there, there was a TV series made in India in the last sort of 10, 20 years, uh, which is about 200 episodes. And, um, you know, the, the center of the story is this battle where the Bhagavad, Bhagavad Gita takes place. Uh, that Everything's been building up to this battle between the um, cousins who are on different sides. Mm -hmm. And um, Krishna is the, a, a god who's incarnated in that period. And he's um, the sort of friend and mentor of uh, Arjuna, who's an archer. That, that's, and, their, uh, that's their version of Jesus, right? The Krishna character, yeah, kind of, yeah, he has like a Buddha so, uh, yeah. type of thing. Yeah, even today, he, you know, Lord Krishna is is one of the pop most popular gods in uh, in India, and he he does, you know, maybe there was even some uh, influence from the British in in India and Christianity in India. But yeah, he has somewhat similar role, you know. Um, but the thing thing is that they're not uh, Hindu religion isn't confined to one god. They yeah. Have, which I really like. They have gods for everything, you know. Uh, yeah, polytheistic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's much, uh, you know, the, the much broader possibilities. If you can, you know, if you're not limited to, you know, this is your god, and um, you know, all others are vain idols or whatever. But uh, anyway, in the Mahabharata, everything's been leading up to this great battle, and you know, so they described, they describe, have stories from generations before that. Um, showing you know um something went wrong with the king and then this is how they got to that you know and then uh so you're already kind of halfway through and or more and you, and you finally you get to the great battle and the sides are all lined up against each other all these warriors you know with elephants and uh, you know really like something from game of thrones and um arjuna suddenly he decides he can't do it he can't be responsible for all this bloodshed and uh krishna uh, starts teaching him. Okay, you ha you have to. Um, this is your role in life. Uh, you have to go through with it, you know, while being separate from it, because the mortal things, you know, are temporal and temporary. And uh, that's the Bhagavad, Bhagavad Gita that he teaches to Arjuna at this point, just when all the uh, soldiers are waiting to start the battle, and uh, Krishna starts teaching him. And you know, this is one of the most famous spiritual and religious texts in the whole world. Uh, it's, an, it's an amazing moment in the Mahabharata. Um, so when you talk about like similarities uh, between mythologies, um, so, uh, you know, have you heard about the Indo-European languages or Indo-European culture? I've, I've heard of it, but I'm not fam familiar with it, to be honest with you. Like, this is this is why this is also interesting to me because I learn more and more. But yeah, go go ahead and do your thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so this is a real um 
I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's amazing. And this is, you know, very hardcore academic scholarship. So it's really, um, uh, you, you know, it's not just some guy in an attic seeing resemblances between something. It's been hammered through, you know, and, yes. and, and, you know, and you've had people opposing the, the thesis say, okay, what's the, this is the, you know, there's this problem, that problem, that problem. And then, you know, you know how it works in scholarship, this dialectic going backwards and forwards. Uh, um, but so this was, I think, towards maybe towards the end of the 18th century. Um, they were, so, so you had the British in India and um, people were starting to, to read the uh, Indian scriptures and learn the Indian languages. And uh, India, the, the sort of the classical language of India or Northern India is Sanskrit, which had the same sort of relationship to India as uh, Latin or ancient Greek did to Europe. So this was the classical language that the scriptures were lived in, but sorry, were written in. And um, it's kind of, you know, it's a dead language, but it's used for ritual and for reading the ancient scriptures. And uh, the modern, languages of northern India uh, descended from this language, just like Italian and Spanish uh, descended from Latin. You know. not, not to interrupt you, Andrew, but and I hate to do this, but going back to the conspiracy theories, there was <laughs> with the Tartaria conspiracy, they talk about how language has been de, I want to say demagicalized, right? The original alphabet only had 17 letters in it, and we now have what 27 letters in alpha because they've added on to it perhaps to take away from the from this magical aspect of language how and what you're talking about back then they maybe they used that language and said certain things and it plays into the ancient egyptians of frequencies and and, and all these aspects of maybe back then things were more magical than they are now i know you practice magic and you're you're way more well versed in that realm than I am, but perhaps there was this other agenda to take magic away from the world because it is a real thing. And we get into the law of attraction where our consciousness has effect on the material realm and, and we do have influence and we can change with our minds. We can change things. And even speaking with languages, we can change things. And I think maybe that was part of the agenda. And I call them the reptilian overlords that they don't want us to be able to tap into that, whatever that was. You know what I mean? Like this ancient knowledge that the people back then had that obviously wouldn't be a good thing if we had a grasp of today. <laughs> yeah, well, I think yeah, language and uh, magic were definitely uh, related early on. And, you know, if you know anything about uh, uh, Gamatria or uh, Kabbalah, Mm -hmm. uh, um, that those are still very uh, magical relationships to yes. language. Um, and actually, I just reading um, recently. Uh, I mean, one of the factors that has um, sort of desacralized uh, language is writing. Of course, uh, I, I mean, so, so first of all, you can have um, magical relationships to writing. You know that that's actually a very strong relationship, but um, writing was initially sort of the preserve of uh, priestly castes when it was developed uh so you can see that like in egypt you know or in um ancient india um 
so writing was you know another way of holding on to the, the um sacred uh, knowledge yourself you know most people it's only scribes and priests who are literate uh and then so now you know we can all read and write just about uh but um it's been uh you know secularized and made less sacred by you know by being yes. available so um and anyway to go, to go back to the um indo-europeans and this is really interesting in terms of going back to any kind of original language um so so i'll, I'll try and cut a long story short um so so they noticed when people started learning sanskrit they noticed that there were words in sanskrit that were similar to words in modern european languages and to latin and ancient greek and uh, so the, the problem with comparing you know like english and french and you know and italian and it with sanskrit is that those languages have all borrowed from each other you know that uh italian and french descended from latin latin's had an influence on english french has had an influence on english mm -hmm. very difficult to work out what the you know what's cause and effect there so when they looked just at the ancient languages latin ancient greek and ancient sanskrit because this is you know like thousand bc you have or earlier you have uh scriptures in sanskrit uh, the vedas uh, for, for example um uh they found these similarities in the words and uh, so they're trying to work out what's the explanation from that and then so what they worked out is that um the indian languages or the northern indian languages and the european languages they had a common ancestor and then this came to include the iranian language uh the slavic languages the celtic languages the germanic languages they all had a common ancestor that they called proto-indo-european mm. and so so they've been at this you know for a couple of centuries and they've been able to reconstruct what the original words would have been like in indo-european and then look so and then you know they're thinking okay uh if this was an actual people who spoke a language where were they from originally you know considering they moved into india and over and into uh iran and over into europe you know so there have been various attempts to work out the indo-european homeland i think sort of the sort of siberia region is a possibility at the moment and then they can look at the kind of words that uh, they find in this reconstructed language and uh, okay they had chariots uh you know they particular they had words for particular trees not for other trees so um uh, you know that, that uh, and then they look at other aspects of culture you know so okay with language this is very straightforward but how about for instance mythology was mm -hmm. there you know a pro an original indo-european mythology and you can see um certain you know certain god figures occur you know like with in the ancient for the ancient greeks and the ancient indians etc you know so that's yeah. uh, really fascinating and it's also very you know it's all hypothetical but it's very solid and people try to attack it you know and then you know it's been refined and everything uh, unfortunately the term that they used for the indo-europeans in the sort of 19th century uh, became very familiar the aryans they they were saying that the aryan people in uh, northern india were the original <laughs> indo-europeans and this they, became that, 
those are the people they believe yeah yeah those are the people they believe kickstarted civilization in that in that tartarian conspiracy <laughs> yeah and, and also the uh the nazis were very big on that. yes yeah yes. so so you know so they thought okay the semitic peoples uh they were sort of there's something different they're corrupting the pure aryan civilization you know and so you know, so from that you know that became a justification you know just one justification but still for all the horrors of the holocaust and uh you know and ideas of racial purity as well because you know ideas of a sort of white race really developed in the 19th century well well actually in the 19th century if you read a lot of stuff they would even speak of a welsh race you know yes. welsh race is different to the english race all that kind of stuff so uh the so this sort of aryan uh, version of the european indo-european theory became very discredited after the second world war because of the, you know the ways in, in which it'd been roped into justifying you know the horrors of nazi germany and everything um and you, you know also we're all humans but we are influenced by you know so mesopotamian culture yeah. you know our, our time systems uh, are based on that and and the the year you know, the 300 uh, the reason we have 360 degrees in a circle is because that that was how it was designate, designated in ancient Mesopotamia. Well, so what you're talking about these these influences on on language now, even with the Celtics and their mythology, a lot of the days of the week are based off of their names for their deities. Thor's Day for Thursday, Freya Day for Friday uh woden day which is another name for for odin wednesday you have all these different names that come from and they're influenced from celtic deities and what you're saying about the aryans perhaps maybe the reason that the term aryan is demonized and the ancient symbol of the goodness it's not coming to, the 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 nazi symbol the swastika the swastika which is an ancient symbol demonized as well maybe perhaps andrew i hate to say it but it might be a conspiracy that there's an agenda from to demonize these symbols and in these words so we look at them in a different light right and and take the take it out of the spotlight for again the conspiracy which i hate to keep bringing it up but a lot of these conspiracies, you got to understand that they they have some a little grain of truth, right? And and the reason I say this is because maybe these people back then, when we talked about the Bhagavad Gita and these different mythologies and these different epics, you have the the Nordics with their weird little stories and quests that their deities went through right you have loki playing tricks on all the gods you have thor dressing up as a woman to take his hammer back and they cut off the hair of his wife and all this craziness all these different stories of their gods maybe they were just being poetic or maybe there is a little grain of truth in there that maybe it was over in belichia but maybe there was these gods that live among, among men back then and 
just how fear is passed down through generations, it has already been proven that fear and fears of different things are passed down through DNA. Maybe that's why chickens, when they are thrown, you know, they they put they did this experiment where they put these shapes over chickens, right? They put a triangle, they put a circle, they put all this. But when they put a, a the shadow of a hawk, the chickens went crazy. This is why throughout we we have the boogeymen, these tales of maybe, you know, to help put kids to sleep to make sure they go to sleep. But maybe they're true. You know what I mean? Like we have to take into account this metaphysical aspect to things and not just think in terms of science how you're talking magic is very real the occult is real and all this stuff has been forgotten right it's been changed over the centuries and added and all this stuff maybe there is another agenda to that or maybe there's not who knows right and this is things that i like to think about and that's why you know, I don't look just at conspiracies because you said, like how you said earlier, history in itself is wild already. So why get into conspiracies when when we don't even understand our, our own selves uh, as a as a human race, right? This is this is why it baffles me nowadays. We have all this racial division and all this chaos and anarchy going on right now and civil unrest in the world. We're all the fucking same. It doesn't matter, right? We just come together as a people and 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 just become one. I think all our problems will go away, right? But again, there, I believe there's other agendas at hand. You know what I mean? And it it just it just blows my mind. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if we did all become one, we'd we'd find new problems. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's and that's another one and. Yeah. Going back to the Bhagavad Gita, I, I butchered that. What you were talking about when Krishna was talking to, what's his name, Ajuna? Yeah. That's when he says, when he talks to him and stuff, and he goes, now I I, am, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's, that's like the most famous line out of, out of that epic. And we get that what is it the 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 multi-hand statue where he becomes like this other thing and obviously we know how that ends but but yeah it's it just blows my mind that uh, what you're saying a lot of things you're saying is, is very true this influence but what why do you think that is what are your thoughts do you think it's just a coincidence or do you think Maybe a little bit what I'm saying resonates with you as far as it being true. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's true or you think it's just a coincidence that all this correlates and it's just people passing it down through generations and it being, you know, changed? Um, uh, well, you kind of lost me a little bit there, but um, I think it's myth- it's true because it's mythically true. Because you know myths, um, they have to be. They have to say something about human existence. Otherwise, they wouldn't be useful. You know. Um, uh, but um, if you mean if you mean the, the idea of sort of gods being on Earth, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So the the kind of the Celtic relationship to the gods is quite 
interesting there. Uh, and by, by the way, I had to say, I wanted to make a little correction there. The, the days of the week in English, they're not Celtic, they're Germanic, uh, Teutonic, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. well, the reason I, I, I said that is because of the, because when I was looking into the episode I did on the Vikings, I did an episode on the Vikings, then we got from the Vikings to Viking mythology, and then from Viking mythology, we did Viking monsters and creatures. And that was one of the things I saw come up that it, they supposedly, right? It's arguable if, if it had influence on the the English language. Again, I'm no expert, so I appreciate that. Oh, oh absolutely. The, you know, English is a Germanic language um, that, uh, you know, also has a lot of French influence when the Normans invaded uh, Britain. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely re closely related uh, languages and the, the days of the week um we uh they come you, you know like in french they're very clearly from latin the latin gods and in, in welsh as well actually they're welsh versions of the roman gods so mm -hmm. um uh you know when you're saying thursday uh so in english that you know that's literally thor's day yeah uh, but uh, the the roman version it's jupiter's day and, and in welsh it's dvi uh, where Yai is the Welsh, what, what Jupiter has become in, in Welsh. Really? Yeah. Or uh, Friday is, uh, so that's Freya's day. Uh-huh. From the Germanic uh, gods. Uh, and it's uh, Dith Gwener in Welsh, which uh, comes from Venus. Friday wow. is Venus. Yeah. Wow, wow. So those, those are very, that's really straightforward, you know, unquestionably true. And, and it comes through from the ancient world to us, you know. Uh, uh, it's just that in English we don't notice it because it's a mixture of of a bunch of different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Sat Saturday is Saturn's day, uh, so so in English Sat Saturday comes from the Latin uh, Sunday, you know, is day of the sun. Monday is day of the moon, and then Tuesday you got is uh, Tu, the uh, Germanic god, who's yes. uh, so the, he's taking the place of Mars there of the god mars you know well you uh, see i didn't i didn't make those connections but from my research i did see that and that, that's interesting right and again that's what i'm telling you and and let me make sure i'm understanding you right you said that it's true in a, in a in a mythological way as long as it makes sense to you is that what you're trying to get at? like if it's true to me it is true um well more a bit more than that myth Myths aren't just fun tales. Uh, they say something. They're, they're tales that uh, that have uh, mean real meanings, quite deep meanings, and they can be about all sorts of aspects of human existence. You know, existence. So you can have myths about how your country developed. Like in in Wales, there there was this very strange story of how after the Trojan War. Uh, there was a man called Brutus who made his way to Britain and he founded Britain. That's why it's called Britain after Brut this Brutus, who's not, not the same as the Brutus who killed Julius Caesar. You know. uh, or the, the myths tell you about the gods, how or, or how certain aspects of the world or human culture came into existence. So, I, I, and so, some of them might encode things that literally happened you know as well um but the myths aren't just stories they're very meaningful 
stories. And also it's a, this odd feature of them that they can be applied to different things, you know, and you, you probably know, you know, like Jung believes that uh, myths express these archetypes. Mm -hmm. So the reason that you find, you know, myths about old, you know, what happens to old men or a baby who gets abandoned and, and um, taken up somewhere else and becomes a king, you know, or that kind of all that kind of stuff is because these are kind of hardwired into us. It's not it's not just a question of it being transmitted from one generation to another and then changing. You know, Jung believed that these these things are really hardwired into us and they're finding they're part of the psyche, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're finding expression from the what he called the collective unconsciousness uh, mm. into myth and uh, art and poetry and religion, you know. Uh, they're kind of seeping out from these very basic aspects of uh, what it means to be human, uh, I, uh, which I find I'm not, you know, sort of hardcore Jungian, but I do um, find that pretty interesting. Um, but, yeah. but, but I want to just go back when go back to your point about, you know, were the gods on Earth, um, and you know, so and under the influence of Christianity in particular, we think of God as basically somebody who isn't here, you know. It's this transcendent God who, um, you, you know, according to, let's say, a sort of a mainstream version of Christianity, uh, God was somewhat involved with humanity in sort of Old Testament times. Then he gave his only son, Jesus, who got crucified. And then, um, then the Holy Spirit gets a bit involved. But uh, God himself is off, you know, off in heaven, uh, <laughs> as well, you know. Um, and we... we we have a little bit of a, a view of like the ancient Greek and Roman deities as being like that. They're off on Mount Olympus, you know, not being involved with us most of the time. Uh, but ancient peoples didn't have that um, same relationship. Uh, even like the ancient Greeks, they had lots of local gods in addition to these Olympian gods that we know about, you know, like Apollo and Zeus and Aphrodite and all those, uh, uh, who were like spirits of the particular locality who you had to honor even even you'd have household spirits just you know just for your family or your house and you know just you know you have a very similar situation in modern india you have um gods like uh, lord krishna who were you, you know worshipped everywhere and then you have everything from um gods of particular villages to a god of a goddess of prostitutes, uh, you know, or or, or whatever. Uh, so every you know profession had its uh, god that would look god or goddess that would look after it and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, so, like in I don't know if you're familiar with Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Uh, you know they make their way into movies still. Yeah, I've, I've, I've... Troy and stuff. You know. Uh, I think I read it back in high school, but what you're talking about the the Nordics had a had a god of skiing as well. Yeah, like, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's about, yeah, that's exactly the the kind of thing. You know, and and you know, before you went off skiing, you would uh, maybe say a few words to the god, <laughs> or, you know, or a little offering of a bit of food or something. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, okay, so like uh, in the Iliad, gods appear to human beings uh, like uh, uh, often they might come in the, in the form of a stranger, you know, or 
but, but it was a very immediate relationship. What didn't happen all the time only happened to certain people, but a God could appear to you, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we get actually uh, after a long uh, detour, we get back to Wales. So some of the um, main sort of collection of Welsh myths is the Mabinogion, it's called, you know. And these were actually written down in the medieval period, um, probably in about sort of 12th, the 12th, 13th century. But they're based on much earlier traditions that went back, you know, probably to the pre-Roman era, so Celtic traditions. And the, the reason that we can uh, uh, believe that is because uh, they're very similar figures in Irish tradition. And some of these names of, uh, for, for example, there's a, a character called Feithlau Gafes, which is pretty uh, tongue-twisting if you know yeah. Welsh, um, who is probably a version of the god Lugus, who was uh, sort of known um, like in Gaul in ancient France uh, in the sort of Celtic era there and also in Spain. Um, and uh, in, in Spain, there, there's an association between this god Lugus and uh, uh, cobblers, shoemakers. Uh, and then, so, so in the Mabinogion, you get to, there's a little episode where he ha, he and his uncle uh, Gwydion, who's a kind of trickster figure, uh, they pretend to be shoemakers to get admittance to, uh, <laughs> to the castle. So you, you get these very ancient motifs that have be- become transformed through the centuries. And the people who wrote down the Mabinogion stories, um, they were Christians, and Wales had been. You know, more or less Christian for several centuries, and the um, you, you know these were written by hand on manuscripts, and the people who wrote the manuscripts were trained in monasteries. You know, um, so it kind of it gets a bit sort of diluted, uh, and the you know the being Christians, they weren't comfortable that that they were still interested in their native culture and their native mythologies. But they couldn't really be calling them gods. So a lot of these figures, they're, they're not gods anymore. They're kind of kings, or wizards, oh. or witches, you know. But the interesting thing is, um, they there's something uh, r- rather than going up into the the heavens, uh, uh, you know, uh, they, they go to into the other world, which is a world which kind of coexists with our own world, and sometimes it's seen as being below. Our world, so you can enter it through these ancient mounds that you find in, you know, in Wales and Ireland, um, or sometimes a fog will appear, uh, you know, mist, and um, then you'll see somebody who's kind of behaving in a strange way, and and you, and you find, you know, it's not even said that you're in the other world; it's understood, you know. Uh, so now, it's, but it sort of coexists with our own world. So the, these magical figures in the Mabinogion, who you know, who used to be gods, they're often uh, they you know they go in and out between the other worlds, and a lot of the many of the stories actually concerned with how humans can deal with the other world. Like like at the very beginning, there's um, a figure called Poish, who's a prince of Dovid, and he's out hunting uh, stags, and he 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 sees a stag that's already uh it's sort of been marked for somebody for somebody else and he kills this stag which is a real you know you don't do that that's really uh not courteous you know and so he the the 
the man who who had uh, was already hunting this stag is found that it's called Aron, uh, king of Anun, which is uh, one of the main names for the other world. And he, so now he owes him something. So Aron tells him, okay, you've got to go down to my kingdom, pretend to be me for a year and a day. And after a year and a day, you're going to fight another king there. And when you defeat him, he's going to ask you to, to give him the final blow to kill him. And you have to refuse him. Because if he gets that final blow, he's going to come back to life. You know? So Poif goes down into, uh, into Anun and he does all this. And um, he, he, uh, he's, he sleeps in the same bed as Aran's wife the whole time. And he doesn't touch her, which is quite this mysterious thing. And um, at the end of the year and the day, he, he goes, he, uh, he, he fights this king, Havgan, at a ford across a river, which is also a kind of otherworldly place. Is this what, what you call liminality, these places between worlds. So like a riverbank or a ford mm. that's between the water and the earth, you know, or islands are between water and earth. The, these underground mounds, which were often ancient burial mounds, they're in between, have this in-between status as well, you know. So he fights him at a ford and uh, he defeats this, this other king Havgan and uh, who asks him please you know please give me that final blow to kill me and so Poif refuses and sure enough that defeats Havgan uh, and he doesn't touch Aaron's wife and at the end Aaron is kind of amazed and he uh, but he has, you know uh, so he he goes and um, gives him uh, make sure that uh, Poif can have control of his own land afterwards and uh, they have sort of, you know reciprocal agreement between themselves so that's like this right way to deal with the other world even though it's never said what would have happened if Poif had slept with Aaron's wife maybe he would have been stuck in the other world um, yeah that, that's so interesting that even the back to the Nordics they had nine realms they had Midgard Asgard, you know, like how you were saying earlier, this is where the gods are at all the time. Sometimes they intervene with the with the human realm. Sometimes they don't. They have, we have lesser deities that are known for different things. But it just blows. And this is why I find all this so interesting because why? And it goes back to that same thing. Maybe. They were just trying, like how you're saying, trying to find a correlation between things, right? Being poetic and all this craziness, but maybe there is some truth to it. It, it hints at different dimensions, different, you know, like the multiverse, right? Things that we're trying to figure out today. And that's why I love the Gnostics so much, because they pretty much had the idea that consciousness came first, right? Like thinking came first, and then obviously you have the whole uh, their trinity. And back then, maybe these people were onto something. But that's that's very interesting. That's that's I I, I love that. Yeah, it's uh, the, there's lots of different versions of, of the other world, and in fact, um, so you probably find this quite interesting now. As the even those stories about the figures like uh, Aran and Gwydion and you know all those characters Branwen and Bran, you know, the, in fact it's from the Mabinogion when we mentioned Game of Thrones that uh, that's that, their the, epic, right? The 
yeah, yeah, the Mabinogion. Well, it's not an epic. It's like there's like stories. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's like the first four tales are called the four branches of the Mabinogi, uh, and they're all interlinked. The the you know the characters uh, they're quite di four quite different stories, um, but they're interlinked. And you know many of the characters used to be gods or goddesses in, mm. in those. Uh, and then the, there are other stories. Uh, like uh, there's even one about um, uh, it's called Braithoid Maxen Reledig, the Dream of Maxen Reledig, about this Roman emperor emperor who has a dream, and in his dream he sort of flies across uh, Europe from from Rome, and he comes goes across the water, he comes to an island, and then he goes the width of that island, and he comes to another. Uh, there's another island, and he goes into a castle, and he sees the most beautiful woman he's ever seen, and the two, you know, two young men playing this game, uh, like a ancient sort of chess type of game, and then he wakes up, and of course he wants this woman, uh, Ellen, and then he he sends his men off to find out what this island is, and the island is Britain, and then he goes to the west, which is Wales, and then. Um, uh, there's another island, Anglesey, uh, off that, and uh, so then he he decides he's got to have this woman. So he he goes off to uh, Britain and uh, and he mar marries the woman Ellen. And the, that's oh, the son oh, of Dag Dagda, right? No, no, no. This is the the, uh, the Dagda is Irish. Uh, so uh, so uh, and this is kind of in a historical time, really. This is in the Roman period, and and then but then he goes and takes a lot of the men. Uh, uh, of, of the island of Britain off to fight a battle in on the continent of Europe uh, and there's various other stuff that go, goes on and uh, Ellen is responsible for making roads so that, so this is actually kind of a memory of certain things in the like an oral memory of certain things that happened in the late later Roman period like so so uh, the, the you know the Romans are famous for building roads and uh, so she's you know, almost had a kind of goddess-like role as a lady of the roads in this case, you know, and the other stories about Ellen, Ellen of the ways, you know, she was called. Uh, uh, and uh, this was actually a historical character, Maximus, who became a usurper, who, who took the uh, uh, throne of Roman emperor, of emperor, and um, he was partly responsible for for taking legions out of uh, Britain to fight his case to become emperor, you know, and everything. So this is like a historical memory that's became a myth. Oh wow! Uh, you know, it survived, you know, centuries later into the medieval period. And then the, the other thing in the Mabinogion is there are stories about Arthur, King Arthur, who, uh, and that, that's, uh, you, you know, not all that many people I have to admit have heard about the Mabinogion. But most people have heard of King Arthur. Uh, I never even heard of it until you until again until I started talking to you about it. And I'm watching these YouTube videos you sent me about it, and it's this craziness. And I'm like, the the lady in the video you sent me has a really strong accent. <laughs> so, I, I can't remember which video that is, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so a lot of people have still heard of King Arthur because every few years you get a movie or a TV series based on it. You know. And, and that's the sword in the stone story yeah right? that's right yeah yeah all, all that stuff and merlin you know as well so so both arthur and merlin were based on you know basically welsh figures and, and it's this really weird 
kind of case of appropriation, actually. Because if you think of, I mean, I know you don't know King Arthur, now, but if you, most people, if they think of King Arthur, they know it from a movie where he's played from by somebody with a really posh English accent, you know, <laughs> played by an English actor, and Arthur is kind of English, you know. But um, the, the thing is, in the earliest versions of Arthur, he, he was a Briton, you know, a Welsh, basically, who mm -hmm. was fighting the English who were coming over, you know, who, who were taking over the island. Yeah. Uh, and um, he, he was possibly a historical figure because in like about the ninth century, there's uh, the Historia Britonum, um, which is this sort of very haphazard collection of legends and uh, chronologies and you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, and it has this list of uh, battles that Arthur fought with place names and, uh, and then who's killed at the final battle, you know, and w one battle kept the English at bay for, you know, a long period of time. So the general opinion is that he was really genuinely a historical character. Um, and then there have been various attempts to try and pin him down to, you know, but he was around the, like the sixth century and he was actually fighting against the Saxons, you know, the, uh, the English. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it became incredibly popular that there was uh, this guy called Geoffrey of Monmouth, and Mon Monmouth is in place in Wales, who did his own version of this. And he he didn't really, he wasn't all that well versed in the Welsh tales, but he knew bits and pieces of them. And he made up a load of stuff and tried to pass it off as a genuine history. So, uh, and, and here's a long section about Arthur and how Arthur went and conquered. Uh, most of Europe and everything, and it's partly in justification for the because the Normans had invaded uh, Britain after you know so now we're, we're sort of eleventh twelfth century we're talking about you know a long time after the time when Arthur was fighting the Saxons so this became incredibly popular it was a real bestseller in Europe and you you had French and German versions of it and you know there are probably hundreds of different versions of the story of Arthur. And then Merlin became the, the, the magician became involved, and he was based on a Welsh figure called Merthyn, uh, and he actually combines a couple of Welsh uh, figures, uh, and he became, you know, the paradigm for the wizard, the, the Western uh, version of the wizard. You know, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, it was in incredibly influential. And then, uh, to, to the extent that the the original sort of Welsh version of him got lost, you know, to because uh, uh, it was a much more primitive version in, in some of the. It's like Gandalf. Life. Yeah, yeah, Gand Gandalf is a bit of a Merlin figure. Uh, yeah, uh, and um, so 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 then so so they're in all different languages, different countries. They had versions of the stories of King Arthur and the Holy Grail, you know, um, that became part of it and everything. But then. Um, it was the English who took it over, and then they had a problem. That so so the, so you know King Arthur was actually associated with parts of England, uh, because because before they became English, you know, when they still had the native Celtic, you know, or British people uh, there. Uh, so so the English had a problem with King Arthur. Okay, they were making him into this English hero, but who was he fighting? He was fighting Saxons. Uh, who were Eng basically English people, <laughs> so they had a problem there. So you, you, it's in, I think, in Mallory, who, who he produced what for centuries was the, the sort of definitive version of the 
epic of Arthur, he decided, okay, they weren't Saxons they were fighting, they were Saracens, you know, who, who were the Muslims uh, that, the, that the Europeans have been fighting against in the Crusades. And so um, he completely turned it around. And it, uh, it's this amazing reversal that, you know, what was originally the story of a man who was leading the fight against the English or people who would, would become the English has now become this Englishman who's fighting other people. <laughs> uh, so in terms yeah. of appropriation, uh, you know, that's really nails it. <laughs> it's, but see, it's, it's weird how they twist everything around. And again, if it's for a different agenda or not, but, you know, you grow up thinking a certain way and, about certain figures throughout history and it turns out like when i talk to people like you who set the record straight it's like wow this whole time <laughs> i was thinking one thing and it actually turned out to be another but i guess i guess hollywood does that too right there's that influence where they want to twist things around and and change things up to make it more interesting no yeah yeah but it wasn't even hollywood it was a uh, you know this was centuries before hollywood um you know, like we're talking like the 16th century, uh, and and from then on, you know, it became sort of English figure. Uh, and then, to, to be fair, there have been attempts in the last few decades to kind of turn it back again. You know, to treat him as a more sort of Celtic figure as the Celts became fashionable again. Um, but uh, you, you were mentioning Gandalf, and um, that, that's the other thing that the Mabinogion was translated into English in the 19th century. And that became, you know, there's lots of interest. In it. There was a lot of interest in mythology in the 19th century. Uh, so there have actually been quite a few sort of fantasy books in the 20th century and 21st centuries that based themselves on the tales of the Mabinogion. Um, there was even a Disney movie, The Black Cauldron, uh, which I think was probably pretty bad. But that, that was, there was an American writer, uh, Lloyd Alexander, who did a series of children's books, The Chronicles of Predine, and Predine is the Welsh name for Britain. Uh, that I, I really, I, you know, my mother used to read them to me when I was growing up. I really enjoyed those. Um, and then we also, uh, like you mentioned, well, Game of Thrones, there was a small influence you can see on Game of Thrones, partly just from the medieval period, because Game of Thrones is very much based on medieval Europe, you know, and all these uh, wars that you get between relatives and, you know, horrendous things happening, you know. Like, like in fact, when Wales lost its independence, it was uh, Llewellyn, um, uh, Prince Llewellyn got ambushed uh, by uh, English soldiers and he was beheaded. <laughs> and the, the head was taken to the to London to be displayed, you know. Uh, so that you know, that's very uh, Game of Thrones kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and th there's a figure in in the second branch of the Mabinogi uh, called Bran, Bran the Blessed, and um, his, his name. So, so you get Bran uh, in uh, Game of Thrones, and uh, so so Bran uh, he becomes a crow, doesn't he, a raven? Uh, Mm-hmm. The yeah, three-eyed raven. Yeah, yeah. Uh so so Bran is actually the Welsh word for raven or crow. Oh wow. Yeah. So so that's kind of straightforward forward. Um and then uh, Lord of the Rings, um I remember when I because uh, I you know, I read, I left Lord of the Rings when I was growing up. Uh uh not quite so keen on the movies, but they have been 
amazingly popular. But I remember going to the um, to the Fellowship of the Ring, the, fir the first movie, and um, when they go to uh, Rivendell, isn't it, with uh, Galadriel and uh, Elrond, and they, they speak in Elvish, and he said that sounds a bit like Welsh, and uh, you know Tolkien was a lingu linguist, and uh, he actually did base some aspects of the Elvish language on Welsh, uh, wow. even even these very specific grammatical aspects, like uh, yeah, so something you get in the Celtic languages, you don't get in many other languages. At the beginning of words change, you know. So um, like the the town I grew up in is. Uh, Called Penarth, but if you go to Penarth, you say e Benarth, it changes to a b. If, if you say in, in Penarth, it's um Henarth, and if you say uh, and Penarth, it's Arfenarth. And the, so the beginnings of the words change, and that, that's a feature of Elvish as well. He built that into Elvish. And um, if I, I, I was looking up some of the sort of specific things about that, so you know, I think in, as a teenager, he uh, uh, Tolkien went and bought a uh, an English Welsh dictionary, and he and he said because he he grew up around Birmingham, I think, which right sort of bang in the centre of England, this industrial town, but you know city industrial city, uh, but uh, and it was it, Wales is also famous for coal. You know, it was in the age of steam, uh, coal was really uh, what powered everything, and um, we we have great deposits of coal here. You know, you know my grandfather was a coal miner. For, for a while and it's it's all closed down now but um uh you know the the british empire as, as was was you know run by coal they said and so T tolkien used to see coal trains going from wales uh to to where he lived and the, they would have words in welsh on them uh because you know wales is a bilingual country in different proportions we speak both english and, and the, the original Welsh language. Yeah. So so he was fascinated as a as a child or a young man by, by seeing these words in Welsh. And um, he, um, you know, he was also an Anglo-Saxon scholar and some things like the ring that, that comes from the Germanic uh, story, the Nibelungenlied, uh, you know, the same source that uh, Wagner had his offer about the ring cycle. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Welsh was definitely something that influenced uh, Tolkien. The ring? What do you mean by that, Andrew? Or... Uh, the, the, well, you, you know, the ring and the Lord of the Rings. Yes. So the, there was an earlier German, uh, Germanic story about the ring uh, that, that, that was, uh, well, it, I'm actually more familiar with, you know, you know, the German composer Wagner in the 19th century. I'll, I'll fill you in on him, yeah? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> How is it that you're able to retain all of this information? Like, you know so much. And are you reading the, any of this? <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, um, you know, it's from decades of reading. And I, I'm, I'm interested in quite specific things. Like, it, it, you know, if you start to talk to me about contemporary pop culture, there's loads of stuff I would absolutely not have a clue about, you know. Yeah. So, uh, we're, we're, you know, I'm 54. How old are you? Uh, 26. Yeah. So we're different generations. So, uh, you know, I grew up without the internet. So, it there was much, you know, more focus on a kind of 
tradition, the kind of mainstream kind of literary culture and everything. Yeah. If you were interested in that kind of stuff, was more unified, you know, uh, or artistic culture, whatever, whatever, you know. And uh, anyway, so there was this composer Wagner, who did these massive long operas, uh, often based on mythology, and one of them, the Ring Cycle, is four operas, and it's like about sixteen hours altogether. Wow. Uh, which is a, a lot of music, often not very melodic music as well. You know, these characters <laughs> spending 20 minutes uh, explaining things to each other. You know. <laughs> and uh, so the ring cycle is generally held to be the greatest of his works. And that that has the um, the Germanic uh, Scandinavian gods in it. Um, so the, the, there were slightly different versions uh in germany so rather than odin or woden it was votan uh uh i can't remember and uh Lo uh Lorger rather than Lo loki but they're they're the same figures and uh there's uh there's this ring that's been created um that will give the possessor control over people and um uh the whole story uh sort of revolves around how this ring is created and then uh votan actually um gives up the ring uh, uh but but that, that has all these knock-on effects so that was a really big influence on Tolkien. i was always told that the lord of the rings had a christian type of storyline to it or something like that but when i actually watched the movies I didn't see that correlation. You know what I mean? Like it was like this. I guess he was like trying to. They they related it to him trying to find himself or something like that. And they relate to Christianity in some way, but I, I never saw the correlation there. Well, well, he he was a Christian Tolkien. Who you know, he, he was a Catholic. Um, but he he actually denied that there was any kind of uh, deeper message in that in that way in the Lord of the Rings because because people have also also seen it. As reflecting the Second World War, you know, um, but uh, and he denied that too. Um, but uh, uh, okay, so Gandalf, um, you know, Gandalf, he was Gandalf the Grey. Uh, this, he, I mean, he 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 Gandalf. Okay, he's actually a divine figure. Uh, yeah, because he, he comes in like a, he's like a he's like a mentor type. Comes in when he needs to be there. Hey, I'm gonna let you do your thing. I'm gonna go do something else. That's it's like that type of of figure, you know? Like yeah, yeah. But, but there's this massive backstory to Lord of the Rings that uh, like the there's a, there's actually a book that collected the, the tales of the earlier ages called the Silmarillion, and then there's you know like a dozen volumes of incomplete writings that uh, uh, Tolkien had that have been published uh, since he died. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, some of them are really scraping the bottom of the barrel you, yeah you know like it and he changed his mythology as he went along as well so some of them even you know uh <laughs> well, don't, reflect, don't reflect the background of lord of the rings anymore you know but um, you know the the thing that really interests me about all this obviously all these creatures and all this mythology that we see today wizards dragons and i'm a big dungeons and dragons fan so it's like when you play Dungeons and Dragons, like all this was influence, had like all of that had some influence on like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So it's like, 
I love it, right? This this mythical aspect to it all. And and it always and you being a writer, it always boggled my mind how people are able to create all these universes in their heads. Like Tolkien, uh George R. Martin and how they're able to create this mythology in their head, this 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 other world and just write stories about it like that always blew my mind and i've i've been wanting for the longest time to write a, a science fiction story but i just don't even know where to begin <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i mean uh i don't know if i can give you advice on but uh well you bit i, I wouldn't be well if i was going to give you a bit of advice i, I wouldn't begin with the mythology, I begin with the story, if you know what I mean. I, I wouldn't begin necessarily begin with the world building. Yeah. Uh, I'd begin with a story that you want to tell. Uh, that's probably the best way to do it. Otherwise, you you might end up with a very complicated world that you created. But you don't have a decent story. Yeah. So, it's not gonna... so nobody, nobody's going to be interested in it. You know? Yeah. So I, I would start. What kind of story do you want to tell? You know, what kind of story means something to you? you know uh that's where i was you know i don't often give advice but there's a bit of advice i'd give you there yeah i appreciate that yeah i've been told before make like an outline like you said right is it true you write the ending first like what you want to happen and then you build off of that not necessarily um i, I was actually I've, I've been working on a gnostic novel for a couple of years and i, I did some of it during lockdown as well and I, i'm actually somebody who likes structure a lot um but what i did is I, I knew certain things needed to happen and i knew the characters and the setting because a lot, a lot of it's set in london in the 1990s um but what i decided instead i just wrote it and i let it go where it wanted to go and where the characters were taking it and then you know it's going to go through several drafts anyway, so um, you, you you don't need to get it right. Don't worry about getting it right at the beginning. Uh, just write, just do it, you, you know. And then, then you have to go through the painful process of reading what you've written. <laughs> <laughs> but it, with this, when I was doing it during lockdown, I used because um, you know you're working on your laptop or whatever, and it's it's so easy to get distracted with the internet and all that kind of stuff. So oh, yeah. I used. I use this uh, program. Uh, it's called Cold Turkey Writer. It's called. Uh, so it, it actually blocks you from doing anything else until you've re- you you enter how many. <laughs> <laughs> so you you enter okay how many you okay so it it captures the whole of your PC until for a thousand words until you've finished a thousand words. Wow. And so That's I do, cool. you know, and then sometimes I get up to two thousand words, or you know. Sometimes if it wasn't feeling very good particular day, I'd just do 800 words. But if you do that every day, it adds up, you know. And you can't turn it off until you're done. <laughs> yeah, you can't do anything else on <laughs> on your computer until you're done, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm <laughs> looking at it now. I That's awesome. Hold your computer hostage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, eventually, yeah, we talked about that. That you You talked a little bit about that story back oof in, in january when we were talking when we did the first episode and how you were just building off of it 
but yeah I've, i've i've always admired that about writers and it's it's hard like you said you get distracted you start doing other things and you just don't ever get it done i don't write for a living is that what you do for a living andrew you write you're just a strict author yeah kind of i, I mean i don't do anything else but um i don't i have to say i don't make much money out of it but luckily we're kind of uh my, my, my wife's fairly good at making <laughs> so she's happy to, uh, but uh uh, yeah, I, I have this trickle of an income coming in from the writing and 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 also my own publishing, uh, and hopefully I, I have all these incomplete projects that uh, hopefully I'll start ticking ticking them off and getting them out. You know, um, but what you know when I was giving you uh, unwanted advice again. <laughs> I, no, I appreciate it. Not uh, unwanted. You know, when it, in, in my twenties, you know, I had all the stuff I wanted to write as well, and you know ideas you know lots of ideas uh most of which i didn't do uh, you, you know and it took me till i was in my late 30s to actually um write a, write a short book uh so um the advice i mean that's what i would say just do it you know um if if you're ready for it you know yeah or, or you, you i mean you might not be ready for it you might you might start get a couple of chapters in and it's not you know it doesn't have legs it's not going to go anyway so okay come up with another idea you know but just do it it doesn't have to be good uh, yeah you, you know I, I was filled with all these notions you know i was going to be recognized as a genius or, or something you know and it, it completely you, you know it's still kind of teenage stuff uh, and it uh, which sort of persisted uh my 20s it stops you doing anything because you stops you doing any you know anything bad you know if you don't if you don't actually get around to it you can't do anything bad because you haven't done anything at all you know yeah but if you do it you gotta you know you could write a whole novel and okay it's pretty crap uh but you've done it and you can go on you get that stuff out of the way and so you can start to rec recognize what is good about you know your ideas you know what's distinctive about your interest and you know your interests and everything or uh so it's just do it, do it, and finish it if you can. You know, if you can't finish it, okay, maybe it wasn't such a good idea. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to live life, right? Like you just, and I'm kind of like that too. I've I've done a lot of things where I'm trying to find the thing that you're good at. You tried this, you were okay at it. You tried that, you were all right at it, and it's like you find something you really do enjoy and that you're actually really good at. And that's why that's why I've taken up podcasting, because like I learn at the same time while I get to talk to interesting people like you about different topics that I normally wouldn't think about. But they do interest me, but you've never actually like you said, you've never actually been down that rabbit hole. And that's why I like to sit down with people who know more than me about certain things and get to pick their brain. You know what I mean? Like and, and have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, sure. And you, you're an easy guy to talk to. So, <laughs> so that, that makes a big difference, you know. Yeah, most definitely. But, man, I don't even know where else to go. We talked about the Welsh. We talked about ancient languages, ancient civilizations, a little bit of everything today. So last time we did it, we were going to talk about the Cathars. And I think we spent like the first half hour, 45 minutes talking about 
the Gnostics <laughs> and some other things. And, and I really enjoy it because I, I learned a lot and, and I find it awesome that, that you know so much about all this stuff. And hopefully, like I told you before, I, I want to get together with you and I want to talk about the Mundanes and I want to also talk about your experience and correct me if I'm wrong, you were in a cult back in the early days back in california is that true uh that's true yeah yeah about 20 years uh from the age of 21 um it depends yeah yeah i mean i, I think anybody from the outside would, would call it a cult of course i didn't think that when i was in it and yeah uh, <laughs> but uh yeah that's a whole different uh, topic i'd have to gear myself up for that <laughs> Yeah, well, if you're ever up to talk about it, I'd really like to hear. I actually did an episode on Colts last week. And again, just like religion and mythology and all these things that have influence on the psyche, that's what interests me the most really about all this, the way that I think I talked about Hitler and the way he was able to influence millions of people to do such ugly things and just from talking to them right this 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 savior figure that that brought everybody together and it's like you said earlier maybe we all do come together it just might be more chaos than what it's already like now because think of a world that's just full of order and everybody's happy and everybody's good how crazy that would drive you right yeah yeah no, you definitely need conflict. To, yeah, it's, uh, it's part. I mean, it's part it's of the human nature, no? Kind of conflict, you know. I mean, you don't need uh, wars that kill millions, uh, but you need some kind of tension, you know. Uh, so uh, everything comes back to Hitler, doesn't it? Eventually, <laughs> <laughs> the the Cathars too, right? With the with the was it the Holy Grail? Who's trying to find the Holy Grail? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, the, he with uh, Otto Rahn and that that whole story, um, the Himmler that that was. Uh, yeah, and, and then when I was just mentioning Wagner, um, the German opera composer, but he uh, Wagner, he, you know, he he used these Germanic myths uh, that I was mentioning, you know, like with the story of the ring and and the gods like Wotan and uh, uh, all like that, uh, and he. He became a real figure of inspiration to the Nazis, and uh, <laughs> Wagner was genuinely anti-Semitic. You know, so this is kind of um, mid to late nineteenth uh, century we're talking about. And uh, it, you, you've heard of Nietzsche, Nietzsche, uh, yes, the philosopher. Yeah, so he, he was as a young man. He he was a friend of Wagner, and Nietzsche got his philosophy kind of pressed into service. For the uh, by the Nazis as well, um, but he actually—I was just reading a lot about Nietzsche re recently, and he—he um, he was a friend as a young man. He was a friend of Wagner, and he became a little bit anti-Semitic under the influence of Wagner. But then he broke—he broke away from Wagner and became anti, and he became opposed to anti-Semitism. And what you know, and a, a a guy from a Jewish family became one of his sort of mentors. And he he was generally he generally wrote against anti-Semitism then you know but uh, but somehow the, the Nazis picked him up and Wagner uh, it, you know when they were trying to press the mythology into their own 
mole to justify what they were doing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so he got kind of, I, I mean, Wagner was genuinely an anti-Semite. I don't think you should. Uh, the, the Nazis, the Nazis were known occultists as well. So they yes, were. Inside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I found that all that interesting. And one thing, and we'll wrap with this one thing that I <laughs> will wrap up with the Nazis. <laughs> one thing that really blew my mind and talking about being in a world where there's no conflict, we might just turn into Plato where he kind of argues with himself and all these different little stories. Plato's The Republic was an inspiration for the Nazis as well. And one time I think Martin Luther King Jr. was asked what he would take to a deserted island. He said two things, a copy of the Holy Bible and a copy of Plato's The Republic. And it just comes to show how one piece of work can have two different kinds of influences on people right obviously martin luther king jr did a lot of good things and then the nazis did a lot of horrible things from one piece of work they both looked at it from a different point of view and uh what were you going to say andrew oh just in the republic um you, you know the basic thing is socrates is um trying to he starts off of it's, it's kind of initially anyway a kind of allegory of what should be happening in the human soul i can't remember is it the just man or the good man he's describing and anyway so so he describes the ideal city as a as a kind of uh compare you know comparison for the ideal human uh, and so it gets into into it all but um socrates actually he assumes that the republic will have to go to war because um uh any community of people will need more land than they actually occupy and so they'll have to inevitably encroach on other people's land so there will inev inevitably be wars and i remember in a sort of discussion group going through reading through the republic and he just takes this as absolutely granted he doesn't even argue argue the case it's just uh, if you have a republic there's going to be there are going to be wars, you know. Yeah. But uh, it it is it has a very authoritarian aspect to it. Oh yes, even eugenics in there. Yeah, uh, sure. There's a lot of good points in it, but then there's a lot of questionable things like, mm. and it goes back to what I told you earlier: changing things up, where he was going to eliminate actors and you're only able to listen to certain kinds of music, certain kinds of instruments, certain kinds of frequencies. And again, this is a guy from the year, what, 300 something, having such influence and having such thoughts about this that arguably you can see in the book 1984 as well, this 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 totalitarian dystopia that, that, that controls every aspect of your life. And we're, I think we're kind of moving towards that. Hopefully not, but I don't know. I don't know, Andrew. <laughs> it's all it's a lot of heavy stuff well he he even going back to the mythology uh you know he uh plato didn't want poets in the republic no uh no. and he wanted to restrict the kind of mythology so that, mm. that only displayed the gods in a good light you know so like in homer in the iliad they're arguing with each other you know and in in other myths they're you know Zeus is committing adultery and raping uh, human women and everything, you know. So uh, 
Plato didn't want any of that in the Republic. He wanted to limit the kind of uh, portrayals of the gods that we could have. Uh, whereas, you, you know, the um, the media has taken our, over our lives to such an extent. Yes. It, you know, uh, I mean, which in some ways can be inspiring that sort of the human imagination and art and music and storytelling uh you know i think that's what we should be doing with our time you, you know uh uh but on the other hand it becomes very artificial as well you know it's like um who's i'm trying to think who's the uh, uh baudrillard you know uh yes yes the uh simulacre and simulation yes yeah yes and so uh more sort of less kind of civilized people have symbols that actually relate to real things whereas we just have signs that relate to other signs you know empty, you empty signs at the end of the day it's it's it only has the value that you give to it and it's nothing more and nothing less yeah i i, I inspired the matrix yes i i love his work and i tell people about that all the time and they're like what it's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you can see it happening you know um and it gives everything this kind of weightlessness um which i mean you know, you know with it with you know with the whole postmodern thing and i i i partly think postmodernism is just it is an accurate description of what you know what we have you know uh and also it's very freeing as well you know like if you're interested in esotericism and occultism and stuff 50 years ago those weren't respectable uh avenues of discussion no. or research you know now they are because um you know the culture has become so kind of dispersed and uh sort of weightless in, in a way that you can do anything you know um uh so it has its positive aspects uh but uh it, it does get very divorced from the sort of bedrock of real human experience uh, is the flip side of it yeah it's, it's like what i mentioned earlier uh, with the maybe there is ma magic is real you just have to really figure out what it was and they're trying to find that correlation between consciousness and the the physical world and even nikola tesla one of the more interesting figures in history he talked about that if science would focus on the metaphysical they would make bigger advancements than they have in a decade or something like that paraphrasing that quote but it's all it's all very real. I, I'd I'd like to have you back on. Thank you so much for coming on today and and, and talking with me, Andrew. And I'd like to have you back on. So we'll set something up and maybe make another free form conversation between the two of us because I really enjoy these chats with you. And maybe the next time we'll talk about the mundanes a little bit and maybe the the whole thing that that we talked about if, if you're comfortable with that and and yeah i really enjoyed our talk today yeah sure i enjoyed it thanks very much andrew can you and i'll plug this into the to the beginning of the episode as well give the listeners where they can find your work you've written various books you also run a, a gnostic a gnostic website for for uh gnostic postings right that they they write uh yeah not not quite but um uh okay so my author site uh it's very creaky old-fashioned website but uh 
<laughs> uh, which needs it, even that needs updating. Uh, so that's andrewphillipsmith.com, uh, all one word, two L's in Philip. Uh, the Gnostic, that was a journal that's kind of at, uh, at the very least in hibernation, or some say it's dead. <laughs> uh, that's the, the hyphen Gnostic.com and uh, Bardic Press, uh, B A R D I C Press.com uh, for my small publishing outfit. And um, yeah, if you just look up Andrew Philip Smith on Amazon, you should see quite a range of books I've had out. And, um, um, I don't have anything out on Welsh mythology at the moment, but I've been working on a really comprehensive dictionary to help you, so help you navigate your way around Welsh mythology. And even though the Mabinogion is obviously fairly well known, but not all that well known, uh, there are loads of other, even less well known stories uh, in Welsh mythology that I've been collecting and translating those. Uh, so I'm going to put an edition out of, of those to kind of give a really thorough uh, overview of the, the, you know uh, of what's available there uh, so that's what, what i've been working on for quite a while nice yeah and i'll, and I'll i have all your links so I'll, it'll be in the description i might post this one next week or the week after so again thank you so much andrew and we'll link up for a future episode